You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 446 of this podcast. Today is Friday, August 5th, 2022. And today we're going to be talking about Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation by Gavin Ortland. I just finished it up yesterday and I've got some thoughts. I've got a lot of thoughts for you. Hopefully we can get the most useful ones in for you, and you can benefit from those. But first, a quick uh, nod to the Reddit Jordan Peterson community for posting an unheard video yesterday, uh, an interview with a certain WHO, that is World Health Organization, nudge unit chief, Essentially, we have a public health official, World Health Organization public health official, who has been tapped to head up what is being called a nudge unit. And it just so happens the same public health official has been a member of the Communist Party for 40 years in the UK. And so she's interviewed by Unheard, and uh, I will post a link especially for those of you who are not on Reddit necessarily. You may want to watch on YouTube, but I'll post a link in the description for this podcast episode. Essentially, she's asked, are you a communist? And she says, so what if I am? It's none of your business. It has nothing to do with public health policy. Uh, but wait a second. Couldn't it? Couldn't it though? Particularly if your ideas and your presuppositions with regards to communism, start translating into how you perceive or respond to a public health crisis or just a public health issue, which then you may want to call a crisis even when it's not. See also monkeypox, by the way. Nudge, though, is an unfamiliar thing. I was not familiar with it, at least. You might have been. But nudge theory is essentially <laughs> this school of thought which is trying to figure out ways for governments to manipulate their people better. We want to manipulate you, and by that, we will get you to make better choices. And so there's a certain book which is on my reading list. It's next up on my reading list for this weekend. I'll be probably bouncing back and forth between it and finishing Polybius's The Histories, but it is called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Money, Health, and the Environment. Authors Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein published this one in 2021, and I want to know what they have to say, especially if there is a whole unit at the WHO trying to figure out how to implement their ideas, their theories into approaches to public health policy, not just at a national level, but 
at a global level and how do they message to the national governments across the globe and tell them hey here's you know what you need to do to be a team player very interesting stuff i will let you know how the book went once i finished it but in other news yahoo news published an article just yesterday by a lee cohen regarding Lake Mead and Lake Powell. I will also attach a link to that article if you want to read the full thing. It's not very long. But a couple of quotes I wanted to pull out because I was literally just talking about how the UN and communists around the world are going to try and push for global communism using things like the situation in the Colorado River with Lake Powell using situations like that of Lake Mead to convince us to give them ever more of our decision-making ability, ever more of our wealth and our power. But a couple of quotes here, just to underline the point I was trying to make in our last episode and in the one before that. Climate change is the heart of the issue, UNEP's North America Ecosystems Officer Maria Morgada said, In the long term, we need to address the root causes of climate change as well as water demands. United Nations Environment Program ecosystems expert Liz Mullen Bernhardt said that the conditions, quote, have been so dry for more than 20 years that we're no longer speaking of a drought, end quote. The climate crisis and overconsumption of water are to blame, the UN says. The United Nations issued a warning on Tuesday that the water levels in Lake Mead and Lake Powell are at their lowest ever and are getting perilously close to reaching, quote, dead pool status, end quote. That status would mean that the water levels are so low, water can't flow downstream to power hydroelectric stations. And this is exactly what I was trying to say in two episodes ago, I believe it was, uh, the bit about the Denver Post and Hakai Magazine articles. It's exactly what I said. And uh, as if on cue, here it comes. Essentially, the UN wants to push its way in and say, aha, climate change. We need to deal with it. Let us deal with it for you, I guess. Give us money. Give us your power. Vote for us. But don't Take the bait. It is communism. It is absolutely communism. We need to come up with some practical solutions, and I'm just not trusting the UN to have those practical solutions, particularly with regards to this uh, WHO nudge unit having been formed. We're going to try and manipulate everybody in such a way that they really don't have representation at that point. If they buy into the manipulation, and they don't realize that the manipulation is happening to them or they've already been conditioned previous to the realization so as to not care that the manipulation is happening to them, this is not good. This is a recipe for totalitarianism, and that's exactly what is coming if we don't get wise. Not having access to food or water or energy and thereafter also to money with the way that money has been printed like it was going out of style, that is how this whole scheme will be carried out on a global stage. And I think it already is being carried out. But go back 
And check out yesterday's episode talking about how I believe Romans 12 is instructive for individual Christians and for the church to respond appropriately to what is coming in greater measure and what is already here. But moving on, let's do talk about retrieving Augustine's doctrine of creation, ancient wisdom for current controversy, because it also is, wouldn't you know it, relevant to this question. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that in the case of interpreting Genesis, we have several different attitudes in the mix with regards to how Christians should, for one thing, engage one another in debate and discussion. That is a major theme of Ortland's book here. Also a major theme that is to be found in Finding the Right Hills to Die On, a case for theological triage, a nod to Al Mohler's term that he came up with. But there's that, right? How do we engage one another in discussion when we disagree in particular? There's also a question of how do we relate to God's word? How does that discussion go? We're reading it, and how do we read it? And how do we interpret it? And how do we understand it? And how do we allow it to tell us what is actually going on? How much are we exegeting? And how much are we potentially reading meaning into the text based on what we observe and the larger conversation going on outside of the text, particularly with regards to science? And that would be, I would say, at least a third category that is dealt with here. How does the Christian relate to claims made by mainstream science? I'll put in a quick plug here for Refcon Press and an upcoming title that I helped to edit from Herman Bovink called The Christian Philosophy of Science. You should definitely check that out with regards to all of the above. But he does an excellent work in The Christian Philosophy of Science. Bavink does, outlining the history of science as we know it, or as he knew it, certainly, from a point in the Middle Ages to the Enlightenment and on into the early modern era, where you have Christians doing science in every sphere and regarding theology as the queen of the sciences. And then you have the Enlightenment And you have all of these scandals and schisms and all of these debates and all of these contentions in Europe, especially between Catholics and Protestants and various kinds of Protestants, plus those who just want to be free of all of this arguing and division and strife and conflict. And so some of those who want to be free of the debate about how much doctrine should inform the way we do science, let's say, for instance, with a heliocentric view of our solar system being introduced. Does everything revolve around the earth, literally? Or does the earth and the rest of our solar system revolve around the sun? How do we make sense of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church prior to the Copernican Revolution? How do we make sense of the way that the Roman Catholic Church related to Copernicus and others as they came up with new ways of explaining the physical laws of the universe. You have men who react strongly against 
that strife and that conflict. And so they start taking science increasingly away from the domain of the church and Christianity and making it less and less distinctly Christian and more and more increasingly secular. And then you have increasingly atheists, not just those who are going to be non-denominational, if you will, non-schismatic about it, but you have increasingly atheists and agnostics who come to dominate the debates about the physical sciences. And the physical sciences all go over here, and then theology is left by its lonesome to be a religious study, but not really a science per se. We don't think of theology as a science, but it used to be regarded as a science alongside the physical sciences. And so we come to Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation by Gavin Ortland, and we do well to note that we have a number of things to figure out. But real quick, before we get too far into it, the book summary from audible.com for this title, and I quote, how might pre-modern exegesis of Genesis inform Christian debates about creation today? Imagine a table with three people in dialogue, a young earth creationist, an old earth creationist, and an evolutionary creationist. Into the room walks Augustine of Hippo, one of the most significant theologians in the history of the church. In what ways will his reading of scripture and his doctrine of creation inform, deepen, and shape the conversation? Pastor and theologian Gavin Ortland explores just such a scenario by retrieving Augustine's reading of Genesis 1-3 through and considering how his pre-modern understanding of creation can help Christians today. Ortland contends that while Augustine's hermeneutical approach and theological questions might differ from those of today, this church father's humility before scripture and his theological conclusions can shed light on matters such as evolution, animal death, and the historical Adam and Eve. Have a seat. Join the conversation. Author's summary from goodreads.com. Gavin Ortland, PhD, Fuller Theological Seminary, is senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He was previously a research fellow for the Creation Project at the Carl F.H. Henry Center for Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is the author of Finding the Right Hills to Die On, which yours truly has read and done a review on. Go back and check that out. Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals and Anselm's Pursuit of Joy. So, real quick, a couple of things. <laughs> Gavin Ortland, being senior pastor of a church in Ojai, California, is a mark against him. And I have to explain this. I have to unpack it. It's not that I have a contempt for people from California necessarily, but there is a little bit of a bias against California in me by virtue of having lived in the past 10 years in my home state of Montana and in Colorado. And for those of you outside the area, uh, the Rocky Mountains region, you need to understand that as California has become increasingly dangerous, bankrupt, and crazy in general, a lot of Californians have moved to the state of Montana, where I'm originally from, and also the state of Colorado, where we live now. And uh, as Californians have moved to both of these states, they have, uh, you know, according to those who 
are originally from those states, pretty well wrecked those states. <laughs> they have proceeded to demonstrate that they did not learn the lessons from California. Having ruined California, they come here and now they're proceeding to ruin our states as well. Uh, so there's a little bit of a mark against uh, people from California. I'll admit it. It's not good. I know some fine people from California, but as soon as I hear that they are from California, I have to work to overcome a certain bias against them. It's just what it is. Um, anyway, <laughs> never mind about that. I still, I you know, in, in watching some uh, discussions Ortland has had with Jordan B. Cooper, PhD, uh, Gavin Ortland, he seems like he carries himself very well. He's very well-spoken. He's very articulate. He keeps cool uh, while discussing very complex, difficult things. Um, you know, he's got a little bit of uh, a vibe to him that I would definitely associate with being from California for one thing and then for another thing, being three generations American evangelical royalty, more or less. Uh, you know, I think to some extent his status and influence has come easy to him by virtue of being three generations in the national spotlight as a, a Christian leader. And uh, I don't know that that's necessarily something to dismiss him over, but it is definitely something to note when he's weighing in on some of these things. He has not just come into ministry you know, being a first-generation Christian convert, you know, parents being atheists or agnostics or some other religion or, or something like that. And he's not just coming up from a, a long tradition of lay people. He's coming from a long tradition of having the microphone, having the audience, and, uh, you know, and you have to keep that in mind, right? The kinds of people he probably grew up watching his father and grandfather and grandmother talk with and engage with in debates at lunches and dinners and parties and things like that has doubtless to my mind, to my way of thinking has doubtless informed some of why he wrote this book, retrieving Augustine's doctrine of creation. And so I make a mental note. It doesn't mean that I dismiss him, but I think it's something good to pay attention to and to try and discern what to make of. Okay. So also, uh, I, a little bit of a criticism with regards to how this was billed. The book summary, the second paragraph, tells us to imagine a table where you have discussion ongoing and into the room, Ox Augustine of Hippo. Can I just say that was the format I was expecting. I was expecting a dialogue of sorts, which would have admittedly been difficult to pull off, but it would have been very, very engaging. As it stands, uh, this was how it was billed, and that's about as, as much of it as you will find <laughs> is in the book summary from audible.com and elsewhere, I'm sure, as well. Uh, a dialogue format for exploring this would have been very, very engaging, such as it was. There are quotes back and forth and then also Ortland filling in the gaps and giving us interpretation and his take. And he does a fine job writing 
you know, he's a an effective communicator. I wouldn't fault him for being, you know, unable to communicate himself. But that is to say, where he is communicating himself here, uh, providing the glue that connects various quotes, various ideas. Uh, you know, he admits, for instance, in Finding the Right Hills to Die On, that he is not a young earth creationist. He doesn't say in Finding the Right Hills to Die On what he is instead, but he just says, I'm not a young earth creationist. He also says in that other work that he doesn't believe creationism should even occupy a secondary tier of importance. It's definitely not primary. He doesn't think it's secondary. He would put it in the tertiary category. And I don't agree with that. I do not agree with that. I do think that it is a secondary issue. I don't believe it's primary, but I do believe it's definitely secondary. And to relegate it to tertiary status uh, makes it, I think, far less apparent to people who would believe that or agree with that because Ortland told them and he won them over with the force of his argument. I think it makes it harder for them to see the important implications, the significant implications to how we weigh and measure a great many other things, not just in the biblical text, but in church history, also in our current political and social climate. Again, going back to just briefly this article from Yahoo News about Lake Mead and Lake Powell and us quickly reaching a crisis level and the UN wants to insert itself and get involved and help us all out. And the WHO nudge unit chief is a communist, literally, as a Christian shrugs potentially over Genesis 1 through 3. So also, will they not shrug at these other things as well if World Health Organization officials or climate scientists or journalists are telling them very confidently, but perhaps not entirely honestly or accurately, that we need communism because science. If the influences in the broader world start telling us what to make of Genesis 1 through 3, and then we listen to them, and anyone who objects strenuously is chided because humility, because science, then certainly so also in the rest of scripture, there will be an effect. And I think it's an I think it's an outsized effect. I think it's a very impactful effect. Regardless what side of the issues you come down on, we cannot deny the importance and significance of these things. And really to get at the meat and potatoes of the premise for this book, it is worthwhile to bring Augustine into our discussions of these things and to see how his approach differed. That said, it's also important to note how his context differed. As he's engaging the Manichaeans and has a different host of challenges based on where he's at in the world, living in the Roman Empire, where he's at in history with the Roman Empire, succumbing to the barbarians and then the pagans. And this is the whole premise for writing the city of God, which is a very impressive, very, very impressive work I finished last year. If Augustine's context was not what our context is. That is not only clarifying. It also is, shall we say, 
qualifying. What I mean by that is it doesn't necessarily qualify him to be the mediator between the various camps that Mortland lands out here, young earth creationist, old earth creationist, evolutionary creationist. But we do well to remember that what Augustine had in mind in terms of potential implications and principles and who all's in the debate in his day looked very different than in our day. Now, I will say this. I will say this. This book, Ortland's book, made me very curious to read Augustine's fuller commentary on Genesis directly. I can't seem to find a copy online, certainly not anything in the way of an audiobook. If uh, you know of one, please do message me, let me know. I should like to read it or listen to it or get my hands on it. Uh, I did find the two volumes, actually, though, from abebooks.com. They're a little pricier than I'm prepared to pay, but John Hammond Taylor translated back in 1982 and published through Paulist Press. Uh, His volume one and volume two of the literal meaning of Genesis is going for $79.16 on abebooks.com, $22.54 to ship from the Netherlands. I'm interested, maybe not quite that interested yet. If I find a copy in some used bookstore here in the U.S., I will definitely take a look at it. But for right now, there are several points where we just have to take Ortland's word for it that Augustine, in context, not just historically, but also in context of his commentaries, what he actually wrote about Genesis, would make this or that of the three camps in our day. You just have to take Ortland's word for it. And that isn't to imply anything untoward about Ortland, but it is to say, I know from many debates, even just the Protestant Reformation as a whole, Augustine is quoted by all sides, and part of the reason for that is because Augustine took such great pains, and this is why I love him, he took such great pains to explore subjects from as many angles as possible at great length, and if you will, to think out loud on paper. He is not giving you the very tightly disciplined you know, five-hour read because my marketing team and my publisher really wants me to make this accessible for readers who have a 10th grade education equivalent reading level, and this is the only book they'll read all year. You know, Augustine wasn't writing like that. Augustine was writing to really, really grapple with the marrow of any topic he turned his attention to. And even, you know, if I dare say, where you read the city of God and you find out it's pretty comprehensive. Anything that comes to mind as he's talking about the city of God, he goes with, he he talks about. Oh, I just touched on mythology a little bit. So let me tell you about what I make of mythology. 
oh, sex just came up. Well, let's talk about sex, actually. You know, why don't we just talk about sex? Well, I thought we were talking about the city of God. Yeah, we'll get back to it. This part of the city of God. Sex happens in the city of God. Mythology <laughs> has to be reckoned with in the city of God. Everything has to be reckoned with in the, in, in the city of God. So actually, you know, part of what I appreciate about Ortland from the two books I've read so far and the discussions about infant baptism I have listened to between him and Jordan B. Cooper is that he is comfortable with nuance. I just wonder on some of these points whether he isn't so comfortable with nuance that he is averse to taking a contrarian position here. You know, he's such a conversationalist and he has grown up with parents who had a broad appeal in America, in American Christianity. And his father is referred to by the Gospel Coalition several years ago as the foster father, I believe it was, of church planting. Well, that's a pretty high compliment. Uh, you know, like, that, that's, uh, that's, that's a big statement. We'll say that. Uh, his grandfather had a nationally syndicated radio program, the Hour of Comfort or the Haven of Comfort or something like that. You know, but but at a certain point, you know, all of us have to reckon with the ways in which our greatest strengths can be weaknesses as well. And so a great comfort on Ortland's part with where Augustine embraces nuance and doesn't tell you at the end, according to Ortland anyway, what his interpretation is. He just lists the many and then explores them one by one by one, one after another. It could be that Ortland is saying humility, and what he really means is let's not take a hardline stance which would offend others who are saying they're Christians and would cause them to not talk with us anymore. And where he is an academic, and if you want to be taken seriously at all in academia, you have to embrace evolution, and you have to embrace modern science and what it has to say about Genesis. You have to syncretize these things. You have to synthesize your interpretation of Genesis with uh, an old earth in some sense, or with the theory of evolution in some sense. Young earth creationists are mocked, and Ortland would say, Augustine spoke to this, and yes, he spoke to it in a general sense, but that doesn't mean that he would criticize the young earth creationist uh, camp and view today along the lines of his harshest criticism of those who reject science. And, and that's probably my biggest criticism of this book, is that where I wonder what Augustine actually walking into the room would look like and him surveying our broader context. I cannot imagine after reading City of God that Augustine would look exclusively at our debate about origins and not factor in the larger trends where follow the science has become a pseudo-religion. In Augustine's day, to my knowledge, that was not the case. Yes, you had philosophers who made cults for themselves, if you will, after a fashion. But for the most part, philosophy 
was talking about what we make of the gods, speculating about how the universe works in a physical sense and how best to interpret these things. But they weren't they weren't grappling in ancient Greece or ancient Rome the way that we are with the capital S science that has become a kind of religion. They, they just weren't. In a secular age like ours that is increasingly godless and increasingly hostile to public displays and public um, influence of Christians in particular, what we need to remember is that science is as close to a religion as a lot of people in the West have. It's the closest thing that they have to a religion, science with a capital S. Now, I think COVID has undermined confidence in a lot of what it passes for science. But then among others, where there was already a social, religious, political, philosophical divide, and the conservatives and the Christians took much more of a critical and uh, you know, non-compliant approach, to COVID response, to mask mandates, to lockdowns, vaccine mandates, et cetera, et cetera, social media censorship, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of folks have embraced the follow the science business even harder in a hyperventilating sort of a way. And so now we come to, if I'm right, a moment where public health policy and combating climate change at a global level is potentially going to be used to implement communism. And if listen to the science, follow the science, trust the science, don't be mocked by the science, if that is on a lot of our minds, I think Augustine in our context would key in on that and pay attention to that. And I think he would be a a great deal more concerned about that than Ortland seems to think he would be about young earth creationists. Maybe, just maybe, when you survey where we're at right now, what is needed is humility uh, on the part of some, but maybe humility is more of a need for those who are trying to reinterpret Genesis along the lines of evolutionary theory. Maybe they need greater humility. And the folks saying, it's pretty obvious what it means. It says morning and evening on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. It says morning and evening. And I believe that's what it means. Maybe those folks, like myself, are actually being humble in our approach to it. And maybe the folks who are saying, let's trust the science, actually need the greater dose of humility, because here's how I look at it. it. It actually takes a great deal of hubris to say that man figured it out. We, we, we looked at the geological record based on our assumptions of godlessness, looking for a purely naturalistic explanation, and we came up with this age for the earth and the universe, and then we interpreted the fossils that we found in various strata, uh, various geological layers. We interpreted the age 
of these fossils according to our geological assumptions of an old earth based on naturalistic assumptions, based on positivistic assumptions. And yes, we'll say that we believe Genesis is true, but do we maybe mean what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. In a great many cases, yes. And that is the trouble with postmodernism, with living in a post-truth society, when it is all harmony and humility and people are allowed to say, I'm a Christian, but they, they really mean whatever they want to mean by that. And God's word doesn't instruct them in so many other areas. Do we carve out some big exception of agnosticism with regards to Genesis 1 through 3? Or do we look at broader trends, which I think, again, us, I think Augustine would do based on his treatment of many, many things in The City of God, which I have read <coughs> directly instead of taking someone else's word for it. You know, I think Augustine would look at how our context is giving rise to more and more people of the kind C.S. Lewis wrote against in Mere Christianity. We cannot just say Christianity is whatever we want it to mean. I'm a Christian. Well, what do you believe? Well, I don't believe this, and I don't believe that, and I don't believe this, and I think that's preposterous, and I think this is ridiculous. Okay, well, how do you live? Well, you know, I live with my... gay or lesbian partner and uh, also you know i'm a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body and you know my truth is that a woman is whoever feels like a woman but i'm a christian it gets downright silly at a certain point and it stops being humility and it starts actually being a great deal of folly and hubris God did not give us a spirit of timidity, Paul writes to Timothy, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And where I like what I'm reading here in Ortland's book about Augustine's treatment of many things is that he is not in a special hurry to outline and engage with and grapple with these things from all angles and to take much more of a conversational approach to it, albeit a very well-informed, very intellectual, very intelligent, very comprehensive, very in-depth, very heady approach to conversation. But I'm not sold on this one distinction that is drawn being in Ortland's favor. And this one distinction I agree with, but I, I don't think that it necessarily makes the case that uh, Ortland is making. He says at one point in Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation that Augustine had no time, no patience for, wanted nothing to do with people who did not believe that the Bible was God's word, inerrant, infallible, and true. He wanted nothing to do with people of that persuasion. And yet, if someone said, I believe it's true, I hold that this is infallible, inerrant, authoritative, God's very word, I just don't know what it means. He was willing to have a conversation with them. And let's outline your perspective and let's talk about what the possibilities are and let's hear what you have to say. 
Well, I like that, right? I, I like that distinction. I think that's very good. I think that's wise. I appreciate it. Uh, it's not always apparent in our day who belongs in the one category and who belongs in the other. It's just not. It's not always apparent, particularly where there is a kind of perverse interest in what I would call being conformed to the pattern of this world. And more to the point, wanting to say I'm a Christian and then coming to the biblical text and wanting the scriptures to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Yes, by all means, observe what's going on in the physical world. Observe what is happening around you. You know, factor that into what you understand the relationship between things to be. But we can't call the theory of evolution popularized by Charles Darwin that kind of science. Nor can we call climate science that kind of science. Nor can we call all of this nonsense about what is a woman, what is a man, that kind of science. It really gets to something very, very different. It gets to something very metaphysical and very anti-truth at a certain point. It gets to a futility of their minds dynamic, which the Apostle Paul writes to as well. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He writes about it as well in the first chapter of Romans. God gave them over to a reprobate mind, an unreasonable, unreasoning mind. They became wise in their own eyes, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Also, yesterday, as we were talking about Romans 12, he says we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than is proper, and that we ought to associate with the lowly. There is a very great deal of self-impressed arrogance and haughtiness in academia, in the scientific community. There's a, a lot less of that, I think, among the young earth creationist crowd. Not to say that it's totally absent, because being a young earth creationist, I can attest that a certain bitter frustration and defiance creeps into some of the rhetoric from young earth creationists. But then I think that's by virtue of being human beings. And I think to seize on that with regards to young earth creationists and to miss it, as it seems to me, for Ordlin to miss it with regards to evolutionary creationists, which seems like a uh, contradiction in terms to me, or old earth creationists, you know, maybe it's not always haughtiness for those who hold to the view that God did it, but he used evolution. You know, maybe it's not haughtiness, but at a minimum, I would say it is a timidity and it is a misguided effort to live peaceably with secular scientists, with mainstream scientists who are hostile to Christianity. We want them to be our friends. We want them, if we are in academia ourselves, to allow us to continue on being faculty at their universities. If we are in research, we want them to continue allowing us to work alongside them in their labs. If we're in corporations, we want them to continue allowing us to have positions of management. If we are writers and authors, we want to continue on being allowed to publish books 
and not be laughed out of the building. If we are even pastors, we want to continue on being allowed to pastor. In some places, it is not a given that being a young earth creationist will allow you to keep your job or maintain respectability. And that holds true for other subjects as well, besides just young earth creationism. Say, for instance, how we approach LGBTQ plus agenda items. It is definitely a slippery slope if we take humility to mean that we will make no claims that would be ridiculed by the outside world. Augustine would say Christians need to do their research and they need to form their arguments carefully because otherwise we are damaging our testimony. It would be a mistake to then conclude from his having said that, that young earth creationists are not doing this thing. I agree with the generalized principle of what Augustine is saying there. I would not agree. I would argue the point. I would debate the point that young earth creationists deserve a special rebuke or finger wagging in relation to that general principle. I think that the calls for greater humility should be directed at the evolutionists and the old earthers. I think greater humility is needed there, not because they are being haughty with the outside world, first and foremost, but because they are being haughty, as I would say, before their maker. Where the young earth creationists are being at least... Uh, through implication or insinuation, accused of a lack of humility is with regards to the outside world. But it does not follow in my experience. I was there on opening day for the Creation Museum. I attended Ken Ham lectures growing up. I definitely have a bias with regards to that. But then if it's correct, if it's true, we should have a bias for the truth. So uh, I... (laughs) Do with that what you will. (laughs) I just say, I am biased, but I also think these things are true. And I am gravely concerned that there is a fatal flaw to the apologetic of trying to synthesize what the world is saying with what Genesis 1 through 3 says about our origins. I think there's a fatal flaw in that. It is absolutely a slippery slope. It is absolutely giving a mouse a cookie and then them coming back and asking for a glass of milk. There are all kinds of games being played with language, by the way. So we get into these weird word studies in the SBC recently over what a pastor is because Rick Warren's Saddleback Church was going to get kicked out for ordaining women to be pastors. And then they start playing the lawyers and saying, well, okay, but there's a difference, right? Like, you know, if we don't have a pastor who teaches or has authority over men, well, then that's okay, right? Like we can separate out the title from the calling, from the function of pastors, right? Like, why don't we launch a word study committee to figure out what a pastor actually is? What does that word even mean? And what it is, is it is studied ambiguity. 
It is an effort at pretending something is unclear so that we can make it say whatever we want it to say. And there are definitely points. There are major, major points of doctrine on which I would need decades and will probably take decades to unpack what is a correct interpretation of the biblical text with regards to election and predestination and free will and how these things go together. I feel like there's a lot more mystery to it than what either Calvinists or Arminians have a inclination to admit. I think Augustine's framing is much more appropriate with regards to origins. I may not have the answer to every single question, but then there's also an acceptance of mystery there too, where I say this point, this question of what a day is, that word study, that seems not to be necessary. And actually, even if Augustine did list among his several, many, multitudinous possible interpretations of Genesis, not reading those days as actual 24-hour days, what of it, right? It, you know, it, here, here's the, the, the thing we have to be careful of in citing Augustine. As much value as I derive from what of his I've read, as much value as the church has derived from his influence and from his works over the past 1,500 plus years, he was not infallible. This is sola scriptura again. We don't only look to scripture as a guide to knowing truth, to understanding truth, but we look to scripture alone as our only infallible guide, our only infallible source of truth about God and ourselves and about the creation and about life. But where the SBC is just getting plain old silly is in saying, well, we, now we need to have a word study committee to figure out what the word pastor means. And yet I think we are seeing the slippery slope play out, which starts with questioning what the beginning is. What, what does in mean? What does the mean? What does beginning mean? What is a day anyways? A day could be any amount of time. And those are worthwhile questions to ask, but this really gets back to the whole separation and distinction between, on the one hand, those who say, I believe God's word is true, I just don't know what it means, and those who really don't believe that God's word is true. I mean, see, this is the, admittedly, and again, not just with creationism, but with everything, this is the difficulty when we do live in a society where truth is not a value, even for somebody to say, <laughs> I believe this is true, if what they mean by true is profoundly different, requires unpacking, right? So I'm going to leave it at that for now. I will say I, I thought it was well-written. I thought it was intriguing. I thought it was interesting. It made me curious to know more about not just Augustine's commentary on Genesis, but also what several other early church fathers had to say about Genesis, Origen, for instance, Ambrose, for instance, dealing with their works uh, directly would be interesting to do at some point if the opportunity arises. But we'll leave off with some amusing slash 
concerning things that uh, I think help to make the larger point and also will perhaps end on a high note, depending on how you look at it. My neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, just sent me a infographic from the Babylon Bee, words redefined by the Biden administration. Old term, new term columns contrasted side by side. Old term, recession. New term, recovery. Old term, Hispanics. New term, breakfast tacos. (laughs) Old term, woman. New term, Old term, monkeypox. New term, virus that definitely infects everyone equally regardless of sexual orientation. Old term, horse reins. New term, whip of death. Old term, inflation. New term, savings of two cents. Old term, baby Yoda. New term, Grogu. Old term, question marks. New term, Trunaliminuma. Preserve. I think that's a reference to Biden just mumbling incoherently because he clearly has dementia or something. His Manchurian candidate mind control drugs are wearing off, maybe. Old term, murder. New term, healthcare. Old term, not handcuffed. New term, handcuffed. This, of course, being a reference to uh, AOC trying to hold her arms behind her back as she was being escorted away from the Supreme Court building. During a protest, she was involved in with several other members of the House of Representatives, the U.S. Congress. She was pretending to be handcuffed, kind of sort of for a photo op, and was not actually handcuffed. Funny story. Old term, groomer. New term, valued public school teacher. <laughs> I like that one. That's, that's good. It's really good. Old term, truth. New term, misinformation. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Also, too, Merriam-Webster has been busy. More than just the Biden administration spinning everything, the uh, press secretary this week saying that the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade was unconstitutional. Well, that's funny. I didn't realize that you now are the Supreme Court. I thought they were the ones who weighed in on whether something was constitutional or not. And uh, here you are. I'm sorry, who are you again? There is an interesting article. If you have a Daily Wire subscription, Newspeak, How Merriam-Webster is Redefining Words to Fit a Leftist Agenda, Part 2. This apparently is part of a series. I missed the first part, but I did see Part 2 here. A certain Luke Rosiak wrote this one. You have to have a subscription to the Daily Wire in order to read it. But there are a lot of words that are listed here as having been adjusted lately. And I'll just list for you the words that are getting tweaked along leftist lines. Democratic socialism was made more positive, for instance, Decolonize was given a CRT-infused essay. Drag, drag king. Eugenics, family man, fat shame. Folks with an X. I've never heard of that word. 
but apparently it is used especially to explicitly signal the inclusion of groups commonly marginalized. Female was expanded to include having a gender identity that is the opposite of male. Gay, gender fluid, gentrification, girl, gypsy, headscarf, homosexual, identify, implicit, immunocompromised, lockdown, junkie, lily white, maiden name, male, mask, mental retardation, meritocracy. So we see that if you can define the words, if you can change the definition of the words, if you can play with the meaning, the clear meaning, the common understanding of a word, you can control the debate and therefore you can control the political outcome, the social outcome, and you can make it what you want it to be. The first part of this series by Luke Rosiak at Daily Wire listed AAL or African American language as having been added, African American English. So apparently that is uh, what they're going to call Ebonics, AAPI, Asian American and Pacific Islander, that was added. AFAB, assigned female at birth, also AMAB. Anti-vaccination, anti-vaxxer, binary, BIPOC, which would be black, indigenous, and people of color. I don't see why people of color isn't just everybody, though. White's a color. I'm off-white. Off-white's a color. Aren't we all people of color? Anyway. Bible, black, black nationalist, black panther, blackness, boost, boy, Brother, cancel culture, classism, colonialism, colorblind, come out, conversion therapy, cotton picking as a replacement for damned is now considered widely to be offensive, which is interesting. Did not know that. Critical race theory, dab, decarceration, demisexual was added also. Decarceration is released from imprisonment. Demisexual is feeling sexual attraction towards another person only after establishing an emotional bond with that person, which is weird. It's all weird, right? It's all weird. This is all very Orwellian. And uh, I know that's probably a term we're tired of, but I really do hold that a studied ambiguity with regards to even simple words in the Genesis account like day, given our context, we do well to see as part of a larger whole and to think more holistically about. It isn't to say that we're all perfectly understanding it, even if we have a good general framework for Genesis 1 through 3. Only God knows it perfectly. But see, that again is Herman Bovig's point in A Christian Philosophy of Science. We cannot reserve the word no for some kind of a perfect omniscience, which only God has about anything. Instead, we should recognize that belief precedes knowledge. We have a belief, and that precedes knowledge, much the same way that a theory is something of a speculation and a guess for the relationship between things, and then we test it. A hypothesis, even more so. It's a speculation. It's a guess as to the relationship between things. And then we test it. And at a certain point, 
we call fact things which have been tested. But what we're dealing with right now is a very obvious power grab and an effort to stigmatize conservative Christians in particular in American society. We should recognize that playing games with language, even, yes, with words like humility, is part of that larger goal. It's part of that larger trend. And it isn't to say that everybody who has a question about what a word means is knowingly engaging in that larger project, but it is to say we need to understand the times we live in. Where Augustine can be very instructive is in his comprehensiveness and in his tireless pursuit of the truth, even over the course of decades. That's, I think, what we can take away from retrieving Augustine's doctrine of creation. It doesn't mean Augustine is now our guide in all things, but it is to say, I think he serves as a good example. I think we should engage his work directly whenever possible, take with a grain of salt. Others, even myself, yes, (laughs) who will tell you about him, read his work directly. Yes, it's very long. Also, that might be good for you. That will stretch your attention span. We need longer attention spans. We need greater attention to details. We need more resilience, more mental toughness. Got to build those muscles. You can't build them if you don't work them. That's all the time I've got, though. That's all for this episode. Check out the book. Let me know what you think of it. If you come across a copy of Augustine's commentaries themselves, feel free to drop me a line or send them to me. I would be interested to look at them. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.